Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Our Athletes. My name is Michael Raziel. I'm your host, and I get to interview Olympic athletes and hopefuls on their story and path of the Games. And let me tell you, it has been fantastic. Today, we have Reese Hoffa, three-time Olympic um, Olympian. There we go, Olympic athlete. He did medal. He got a bronze um, in his most recent Olympics. And Reese has an incredible story. He was adopted at a very young age. Um, he has done all these amazing things just the way he got into his sport what he's done from there um the the story about him in a mask i hope you guys enjoy it i thought it was hilarious so he's really just willing to do anything to get to where he needs to go and it was interesting because he's been to the olympics three times to hear the comparing and contrasting of the three olympics what he did differently each time what he did the same each time and what he knew he needed to do by the third one to finally get the medal he was seeking out so again one more time reese hoffa such a cool dude very interesting i really hope you guys enjoy it and i uh, hope you have a wonderful episode all right today another special guest we have a three-time olympian reese hoffa he's part of usa track and field he where he um his discipline was shot put uh, i picked i picked up one of those balls once because my dad used to throw shot put and um Man, it's impressive when I look at some of those numbers that you've been able to put up. So congratulations. Let's start off with that, Reese. Uh, Reese was born October 8th, 1977 in Louisville, Kentucky. Reese and his brother were actually put up for adoption at a relatively young age and eventually were separated. Reese attended the University of Georgia, where he was a five-time All-American. So I'm very curious about that. I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, Reese has won. Here we go. He has won the gold medal at the Pan American Games, the World Indoor Championship, the World Championships, he won silver twice at the World Indoor Championships and bronze at the 2012 Olympic Games. And again, he is a three-time Olympic athlete, 4-8 and 12. Reese, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. We appreciate it, man. So, um, you know, I, I gave a little bit of a synopsis, but something tells me you're pretty good at, you're probably better at telling your story than I am. So if you don't mind elaborating on a couple of those points and filling in some of the details for us. Okay, uh, I guess we'll start at the beginning. Um, Perfect. Yeah, any story, you got to start the foundation. Um, so, at I think my mom was 14 when she had her first kid, which was my brother Lamont. And then she had me at 16. So, she basically um, got pregnant in middle school and then worked her way. And I guess she got pregnant again in high school. She graduated from high school, kind of recollected her life a little bit, figured out, okay, can I raise two kids on the amount of money that I have? And she came to the conclusion that she couldn't. And uh, she put me and my brother up for adoption in, um, I think it was Shepherdsville, Kentucky, something like that. Uh, we went to a city run orphanage and then we went to our main uh, St. Vincent, St. Thomas orphanage where I stayed for about a year before I was adopted by uh, the wonderful uh, Kathy and Steve Hoffa. Very cool. I mean, obviously not very cool, but it's <laughs> thankfully that they, they were able to do that. I mean, and, and, and we don't need to get too deep into this if you don't want yeah. to, but like, oh, no. what were like now looking back on it, what are some of the feelings that like you have about it? Obviously it's, I mean, it's difficult for a 16 year old girl to raise two children now mm -hmm. after you've been 16 and gone through everything. And now obviously as old as you are, you know, what are, what are, was there remorse and anger at such a young age? And then that kind of came back around and you realized, okay, I respect and understood exactly what she was doing and why she did it. So I guess to, to answer that question, let's go back to when I actually found my birth mom. Uh, so I was a college junior at the time at the university of Georgia and this is at the, this is so early. This is the advent of the internet. That's how early it was. So uh, I happened upon a website. So I couldn't Google orphanage searches. You just had to just meander through the internet. And I uh, found a website where she had, had a post about um, a kid, which was me. And we go on this website, you had to put in your date of birth and the state that you're adopted from. I was adopted from Kentucky. And there were like two posts. So the first post was some random person. And then the second one definitely resonated. Uh, it was, um, the post was a kid that was getting up to adoption to a big family in Kentucky. And uh, they have, their house eventually burned. And the full name, which was my, my birth name, was Maurice Antoine Chisholm. Um, this is the email. Please contact me. So um, obviously um, I'm floored when I find this out. And uh, it took me a couple of days. I actually just kind of paced for several hours. I sent her an email, gave her my, uh, my, my dorm number, I don't, I'm sorry, my, phone, my cell phone number, my email address, 
And then I think I waited about a month. And then all of a sudden I get a random phone call on my cell phone from a lady who her name was uh, Diana Watts. She's like, Hey, I think, um, you know, uh, I think I could be your mom and earlier in my life. So when I was three going into another story, um, me and my brother were walking home from daycare. We find a lot, a cigarette lighter on the ground and this is before they had the protections on there. And my brother was lighting strings on a curtain on fire and put it out with water, ran out of water, goes to get, uh, puts the lighter on the bed, goes to get more water out of the bathroom. I start playing with it. I light a string on fire, end up burning the second story of our house. And, um, Eventually, that's what I think I'm put up for adoption for because a very short period of time in an orphanage. Um, so the first thing I tell her is, hey, I'm sorry for burning down the house. Um, and she's like, well, that was not the re- uh, burn down the house and then put me up for adoption. She's like, that wasn't the reason. Um, she was, you know, I'm young. Um, I was a single mom. I couldn't raise you kids. That was why I put you up for adoption. And that kind of started the dialogue. And I think we stayed in and out of contact. She has two kids of her own. She has a kid that's with Down syndrome and stuff. So she's really, really busy a lot. But we stay in contact. I've actually got a chance to meet my uh, my brother, who's in the orphanage with me. So I consider it a you know, long story, but I do consider it a positive thing because I wouldn't be where I'm at if she didn't make that decision, even though how difficult it was. And I never resented her for putting me up for adoption. Um, I was very sad. But I'm very forward thinking and how I've lived my life. Like, okay, well, this is the situation I'm in. I need to figure out a way to survive. So I better get to surviving because if I just live in the past, I'm never going to go forward. So. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's extremely difficult. Obviously I've never had to go through anything like that. And you know, you never wish that upon anyone either, but you know, as you said, you know, being able to be forward thinking, understanding where you are now and none of, you know, literally your entire life would be, a hundred percent different. N- nothing would have turned out the same. So it's always good to to realize that and understand. Like, hey, it's you know, it's obviously an unfortunate situation. It was best for her at the time. Turned out to be best for you in the long run, potentially. Um, and you know, I'm hope. Uh, it sounds like burning the second story of your house may have been the straw that broke the camel's back. I guess you could say, in a sense. Um, you yeah. know, obviously she was busy and she had things to do, and unfortunately, um, that was uh, that was maybe the the the. Um, the moment that she realized, okay, this is, this is not going to turn out best for them. And, you know, that's, that's gotta be an extremely hard decision for make for, for anyone to make, especially a 16 year old girl with two children. Obviously that's, it's pretty difficult. So, um, so you're put up for adoption. You're, you're obviously adopted into a big family. It sounds like, tell us a little bit about that and kind of how growing up, you know, was completely different after, I mean, you knew nothing else, but you know, how, how did Mm -hmm. then growing up go and, and, and moving forward kind of with your life? So um, I get adopted into the, the Hoffa family, and it was, I think it was generally, it was a pretty good transition. Um, they already had, I think, four kids of their own, so I'd be number five. So it wasn't that they didn't know how to raise kids or anything. Um, I was, for the first two years of my life, we lived on a farm. So we're taking care of cows, chickens. Uh, my dad worked at a place called Sweetheart Cup, um, and we just, I did farm stuff. Hey, you know, and I'm four or five, so I'm, I'm not super useful, but I can carry some wood and um, just do farm stuff. Go swim in a pond and, and just try to be a kid and try not to get killed. You know, that kind of, <laughs> that kind of thing, just playing with kids. So I think the, the oldest was, I think, six or seven years older. Then I had a younger sister who was like three. And then they eventually they, they had another kid who was my um brother um chris so i mean we ran the gamut in terms of ages so you always had something to do but i I generally think it was really good um one of the kind of some of the obstacles i had to overcome you know i was close to five years old and i i never saw a book um so i didn't have like i didn't know how to count so when you're trying to go to you know kindergarten and you have no foundation of education it makes things very difficult there but uh, bless my mother's heart, she uh, worked her butt off to try to get me as caught up as she possibly could year after year. Um, I didn't like it because I had a lot to do a lot of stuff during the summer. So I didn't have a lot of summers. I was doing a lot of catch up, catching up during the summer, but it obviously worked out. Um, I did you know, end up going to college and doing well in school. 
but that was definitely a struggle. And um, I'm very appreciative of all the hard work that my mom put in to get me caught up. That is incredible. I mean, with four other kids at the time and one more on the way, and she was still able to do all that for you. I mean, that's, that just shows the, the size of some people's heart. And, you know, that's, that's absolutely incredible um, that that was able to happen and you were able to uh, partake in that and get that opportunity. Um, I just like how you said farm stuff a couple of times. I've grown up uh, <laughs> on not quite a, a traditional farm, but, you know, I've bailed hay enough times in my life to know that I never want to bail hay again. So I'm sure that's one thing you had the opportunity to do. Um, and, you know, now, now kind of looking at you, you're a pretty big dude. I'm sure uh, all that had to uh, definitely helped um, in the uh, maturation process of uh, picking a bunch of stuff up and throwing it. Is, am, I, uh, am I far off on that? Um, my responsibilities was uh, getting up at, it seemed like five o'clock in the morning. And we lived in Kentucky, so you've got to break the ice, you've got to feed the cows, get the eggs. And moving hay, so I was only five, so it was only so much I could actually do. So I could move maybe one at the time. But, you know, just having to move, like we go out and my dad would cut down a tree and being able to carry large amounts of wood somewhere. Because, you know, when you try to heat a house as big as we had, like having a fireplace was, was pivotal. So we're always cutting down trees, getting stuff ready for the winter. That was, uh, that was probably what I, that's what I did most of the time. That is that is incredible, and and thankfully you don't have to do that anymore. I guess that's always yeah. <laughs> you lived it, you understand what that's like, and now you can have an appreciation for everything else moving forward. So that is, um, that is just fantastic. So what? Um, so you go to University of Georgia. You're mm -hmm. a five. Well, actually, let's let's move back a second. When did you start throwing shot put? At what point in your life you're like this heavy thing? It's kind of rounds, kind of small. I want to throw this as far as I can. How did that come about? How do you, people get into shot put, I guess. Yeah. So the first exposure that I had to shot put was, I think, 88-ish um, when I was still in elementary school, somewhere around that point. I, I could be. But basically, a PE teacher brings a eight-pound ball and lets everybody in, the, in, the, in my class in PE throw a shot put. So that kind of piqued my interest, like, what is this metal thing? So I tried to throw it. Um, but I was primarily a baseball, so I go to middle school, play baseball, but in eighth grade, I'm like, well, I think I can do something else. So I'm going to add track and field to it. So I, I'm going to throw a shot. So I remember very rudimentarily uh, what technique they were using, the glide technique. So I go to the track coach and say, hey, I think I can, I can do this. So I do it. And they're like, okay, you're one of the top two guys. Yeah, you can do track and field and play baseball at the same time. And throughout that process in middle school, I would go up to the high school and I would go see the high school coach. I'm like, oh, hey, we're shot putters. Can you help us? And uh, his first, in, and this kind of funny, the first instinct was, no, I'm not going to help you guys. You guys are horrible at throwing shot put. You know, I'm a high school coach kind of deal. And, but I was like, okay. And to be honest, I didn't win anything. I think the, the highest I placed, I got a fourth place ribbon in middle school. So I'm like, maybe I'm not very, I'm not going to be a very good shot putter. I'll continue to play baseball. So I played baseball my freshman and sophomore year in high school. And then my junior year got a little political at my school. I'm like, I don't want to play politics playing baseball. I'm going to just try shot put. I mean, it was at least somewhat interesting. I had fun doing it. I could eat tons of food, but I could still be athletic. So I'm going to continue to do that. And my uh, high school coach at that time was thrilled to have me because I'd grown a little bit. I got a little bit bigger. And we just started that journey. Um, the first couple times I started throwing shot, I wasn't, once again, I wasn't very good. But I started picking up a lot faster because I was a lot stronger. Uh, he taught me some technique. And I went from throwing, I think it was like 35 feet. So by the end of my junior year, I threw 58.8. So I'd made a lot of progress in a very short period of time. And I think really what it came down to was our, our region championship. If I didn't find a way to make it to state and eventually, th I mean, I think I threw 53 feet. If I didn't get to state and threw 58.8, there would have never been interest in me as a shot putter. I would have just been another random person. But lucky for me, I threw 58.8. And that, start, that really is what started the journey to me, at least having an opportunity to throw in college. And you obviously did killing it in college, went to the University of uh, Georgia, go Bulldogs. Um, yep. Absolutely. I'm all, I'm all for it. All for it. Let's go SEC. So 
That is a, that's pretty incredible how that kind of worked out. I'm a baseball guy myself, personally. I don't know if you can see oh. my shirt. It's pretty depressing, but I'm a nice <laughs> Mets fan. So it is what it is. Um, but it's just one of those things that like, it's, it's so interesting. I love hearing all these stories because there's so many, if this, then this occurrences, like obviously, like with you particularly, if I didn't throw 58-8 and get to States, none of this would have happened. You know, I've heard so many stories like this now and it's just so cool. And, um, I just, I just also think it's really interesting. Is that like for you personally, I've talked to again, many athletes at this point, is it, is it one of those things that was just like, Oh yeah, it's not a big deal. Like obviously this happened and this happened, or is it something that you kind of look back on occasionally and be like those two or three feet literally changed the rest of my life. Yeah. I think it definitely changed my life. Definitely for the positive. If I do not, and it only took really 56 feet to win state that year, but if I wouldn't have been so close to showing promise of throwing 60 feet, there's no way I would have had a chance. Um, I think Don, who would be my, who's my, who's my college coach, probably would have just overlooked the result. But then he saw this kid throwing 58-8. You talk about just hitting it at just the right time. You know, if Don didn't come, if Georgia didn't hire Don, coming from Southern California, to coach at Georgia at the time, I probably would have been playing football at like Troy University and would have just been another football player. But it just so happens Georgia hires him and said, hey, we're going to give you a little bit of money to start your program. So we, I think they gave him four or five scholarships, which is full scholarships, which is outlandish if you know the college landscape, landscape of track and field. Most schools don't just give a coach that, that much money for throws. And I just so happened to be just good enough for them to say, okay, yeah, we can give this guy a scholarship to come to our school. And you, got a, and you got a full ride to Georgia. I got a full ride to Georgia. And what's interesting is when I was going through that process, I can't tell you how many schools said that a guy that was six foot, 245 pounds, there is no way that this kid's going to be able to go to college and throw a 16-pound ball, anything. So, if they're 50, so they have a rule of 10. So if you can throw 60 feet, you're going to throw 50 feet as a freshman. That's just kind of the way it plays out. And I guess Don must have saw something in the tea leaves and said, okay, I can see this kid throwing really, really, really far. But, and, and, it, and it worked out in his favor. Because, you know, when I, I was a freshman All-American, so obviously when, they, when I go to the NCAA championships, all these schools are like, well, uh, we didn't think you'd be worth anything. They come up to you and say, you just changed our entire perception of what throwing can actually be. And I think what they can't see is, is the heart and the willingness and the dedication that we have to be great. That is, that's awesome. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, was it something specific you were doing or was it just the passion? And it sounds like the heart um, that you're putting into it, especially as you said, being, I'm assuming a little bit shorter than some of these guys, maybe a little bit mm -hmm. smaller and still being able to, I mean, be a, a freshman all American at 18. That's absolutely incredible. Well, I think in, in when it comes to college athletics, you're kind of like even in football. If you're six foot six and you can be weak as water and not really that athletic, you're going to be given a chance because you meet a, a particular mold. Mm -hmm. And there really haven't been a lot of really good shot putters that were under six foot. So there, there was a mold. So like the UCLA's and the Alabama's or Kansas's, all these schools showed interest. Florida State, they showed interest in what I was doing and they're like, we can't give you major money because you're really not that big. And it wasn't the distance. So like if I was six foot five and threw 64 feet, they would have most definitely given me a full scholarship. No question. But because of the height and they're like, well, he's not very big. He's probably not going to go that far. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that it will change the mode of what other track and field coaches will pick up. So you've changed an entire sport in a way, I, in, I would a way. Say, in a way, um, there, or at there, least opened up some eyes to less than just the, the, you know, the 1% of the, you know, perfect mold as you were talking about before. Yeah. I, I think that's the case. Even, even as a professional, um, I don't think there's a lot of people who thought this guy is going to be a professional shot putter. So it's incredible, man. And we love it and we appreciate it. And you've been, you know, helping out our country and representing our country for a long time now. So it's uh, we're lucky to have you on our side. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, so, so what, what is something that you attribute again, you know, you talked about the heart and I actually want to go back to again. So I grew up on a farm ish 
Um, I know people that grew up on legitimate farms is, mm. and, and there's always like country strength or farm strength that comes from it because you're using all these extra muscles. You're not just sitting in a gym lifting weights. You know, it's definitely, you know, hay bales, it's wood, it's doing all these extra things. Do, do any of those, do you attribute, you know, your, your, I guess, foundation or core strength to any of these, you know, farm activities, I guess? Um, I have to give a little bit to it. Now, I was only on a farm for about two years. And okay, then we, okay. we moved from Barstown, Kentucky, living in, like, in, where we lived, it was, we had two neighbors, and that was it. Um, so, when I, we we're in the middle of nowhere. It took us 25 minutes to 30 minutes to get to a grocery store. So, that farm stuff, though, is you kind of learn hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, I know like when we finally moved from there, when we lived in a, uh, a subdivision for, I don't know, another six or seven, eight years. And then we moved back to kind of a farmish kind of thing. So we had horses and stuff. So when I was 16, 17 years old, I learned a lot of hard work because my dad would say, okay, here's a chainsaw. Here is some stuff to cut down wood. I need you to clear, you know, X amount of land so I can get my bush hog in the back there and then we can cut down more trees and make more land for horses and cows and stuff. So you definitely learn how to be self-independent and self-motivated in getting things done because the longer it takes for me to do the task for my dad, the more time I have to spend there or I can go in there and kick butt for two or three hours and then I have the rest of the day to do whatever I want and everybody's happy. And that's kind of what shopping is about. You're not officially on a team or you're on a team, but you're not on that team, especially if you're a professional. So you have to be very much self-motivated and going out there, okay, I, I got to do this, this, and this. Do it perfectly on the first try. Don't take a lot of time to do it. And then once you're done, you're ready to go. You rock and roll and you do it, you execute. And learning that from doing just being on a farm, you know, mo- uh, moving limbs, cutting down trees, um, learning new tracks. Like I remember the first time working with a chainsaw, I was terrified. Um, being able to drive a tractor, you know, there's, if, if you've ever seen a tractor, those things, there are a million different levers that do different things and just learning what you have to do and doing it perfect and without making any mistakes. And it works. And I and love it. it. And it's, yeah. it's incredible, man. It's just such a cool story. I love it. And so, so you're at Georgia, um, you're kicking butt. You're obviously an all American your first your freshman year. Mm-hmm. You're an All-American four more times. You're in college for four years, if I'm not mistaken. So explain how you are a five-time college All-American. Uh, you know, my freshman year, it was, it was an eye-opening experience. Um, I went from throwing 64-3 to 52 feet. 62 feet, sorry. 62 feet as a true freshman. Or 63 feet as a true freshman. Um, and I'm going against people that are way bigger, way stronger, and you have to convince yourself that you're just as athletic and just as good as the people you're competing against. So being a freshman All-American, that was awesome. Uh, doing it again my sophomore year. And then uh, I started a little bit coming into my own my junior year. Um, I had some back injuries because you got to lift a lot of weight and work a lot harder. Um, so I was coming out of being hurt more. Made a big stretch, so I was lower places, and I finished uh, outdoors fourth and then got third so I, I just kept progressing up that ladder and just just reminding yourself there's a reason why you're here and you're just as competitive as the people you compete against and you beat them most I, of them most of them most of them so the crazy thing is a lot of the people that did beat me in college I'm kicking their butt as a professional. <laughs> hey, and that's uh, as long as you get them. There's a little revenge factor that's always fun. So you might as well put it to good use and, and utilize it. So that's awesome, man. So then, so, so you, you graduate from college and then you start competing for the U.S. team. How, how does that process work? How do you get noticed? Um, how do you, I mean, obviously being a five-time All-American, that's noticeable. But at what point does someone come up to you and say, hey, are you willing to try out? Hey, how do, here's how you qualify. How does that whole process work? So the, the process of being a professional, um, unless you are, so being a five-time All-American, they're in the professional ranks, they're a dime a dozen. There are so many All-Americans. What really distinguishes you right when you get out of college is being a national champion. That shows like, oh yeah, he's the best of the best. Mm-hmm. Even sometimes that's not enough. It's more on how far can you throw in comparison to the other professionals that are competing. So when I got done, I was like number 
36 in the world. So barely, uh, like I was a second page track and field athlete my first year. So people didn't, even, people didn't know how far I was throwing. They had no idea who I was. And the second part about being a professional is you need a manager. And when I first came out, um, I went and talked to a million managers and they're like, okay, you don't throw far enough. You're not going to make any money doing this. I'm sorry, I can't take a risk on you. So I was lucky and the New York Athletic Club um, decided to pick me up and it wasn't because they wanted to. So my mom, I told her like, hey, I want to be a professional. And this is my, um, my birth mom. This is why we're kind of talking. I'm telling her about the process of being a professional. And so I was like, hey, you need a manager and you need like somebody that's going to help support you. So um, during my senior year, she gets on the phone. She just starts calling Nike, Adidas, Reebok, um, anyone, Hardee's, Waffle House, anyone that would take her phone calls. She's like, hey, my son, he's coming out as a professional. He wants to be a professional shop putter. He needs support, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so she gets, she gets told the New York Athletic Club. I told her, like, you know, they're a sponsor, you know, throwers at least. She calls them, and she must have pestered them for a week. And uh, right when I graduate, um, I finally get an email from them and say, hey, you know, we see that you're an All-American. You're an up-and-coming guy. Uh, but we do realize that you're really not throwing that far. Uh, but we are willing to give you a chance. And you should probably thank your mom for that because she just <laughs> she kept on top of us. Uh, so the New York Athletic Club sponsored me. And the kind of their sponsorship was, we'll just pay for you to go to the national championships. And if there's some domestic meets, we might help you get there. Like, we'll reimburse you. So that's what I did for my first year. And it, and it helped a little bit. Um, also, there was a program through the US, US, uh, USA Track and Field that takes top guy, you know, kids that came out of, out of college that were in the top 10 or something. Uh, they gave you a grant. I think it was two grand. They're like, hey, we'll give you $2,000 in health insurance, which is good because once you graduate from college, you lose your health insurance. So if you get hurt, you know, there's, you just have to pay out of pocket. So like, we'll give you health insurance and we'll take care of you there. And that two grand came in. It was awesome. It allowed me to travel to two or three meets in the U S and gave me a little bit of exposure. So the next big thing that happened was in 2000, that was in 2002, 2003 rolls around and um, I got an opportunity. I, we've been setting up a meet in Carson, California. So we knew the meet director there and we're like, look, my name is Reese. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get into your track meet. So they're like, and we pitched them thrower X, the unknown shot putter um, to them. And they loved it. They're like, okay, Hey, we'll give you 500 bucks. You show up to our track meet in a, uh, in a wrestling mask or whatever with a cape. Um, we'll have a little person put chalk on their head and we'll let you in our meet. And so I'm like, done. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm desperate because I, I, you know, unless you're doing these track meets to actually pay money, you make no money in, in track and field. So I did it. I threw really well, finished second to meet. It was my PR. But the next big thing that kind of helped propel, uh, propel me to being able to be a professional was I uh, made the world championship team. Uh, I went to Paris in 2003. And then that really distinguished me from being, okay, this kid that's throwing okay to, oh, hey, this kid's pretty good. He made the U.S. national team which is, you know, we're the number one track and field country in the world. It's not easy to make these teams. And I made it. Uh, I went to the world championships, did absolutely horrible. <laughs> but I was on the team, and I parlayed that into being able to go to Europe. So at the time, I was working as a customer service representative for an organization called Bile America. So I'd take phone calls for Chase Manhattan, um, uh, Bank of America, uh, so magazines, uh, took fraud calls. I did. I was just on the phone all the time. And that's how I kind of supported myself for a year. So right before I went over to Europe, I just, I quit my job and said, look, if I cannot make enough money as a professional um, this year and let me allow me to make it for one calendar year, going to the 2004 uh, track season, getting ready for the Olympics, then I probably shouldn't be a professional because it's costing me more money to be a professional than it is, is in relation to how much I'm making. So I took the gamble, rolled the dice, uh, went over to Europe, made a robust $10,000. But that ten grand was enough for me to live on for an entire year. Because uh, my expenses was I paid $150 a month for rent. And then I had another $100 
in utilities like internet and uh, TV. I didn't have a, I didn't, we didn't have AC or anything. It was a really old house. Uh, but I just survived. I, I had the uh, George Foreman diet. We go to Sam's and we buy tons of meat in bulk and we do hamburgers and chicken and a lot of sandwiches. Um, I never went out and this is just what I did until I finally made it in 2004. That's incredible. Like just is the, the, the perseverance, the, the willingness, I mean, I think is one thing. I'm, you, you went to a meet and told them that you'd be okay with wearing a mask and a cape. Like that's, you don't see that anymore. Like you've, I don't think you've ever seen that actually, not anymore. It's only happened, it sounds like once. I um, mean, if it's happened again, they knew you did it and it worked. So that's, 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 well, let's go back to that for a second. What was that like? Were, were people shouting and hollering were they like what the heck is going on you said there was a little person there like what that was like a, almost like a circus event at this point it was a circus event. it was a, a meet in carson california called the home depot uh, home depot grand prix um it was its first year and they wanted to get some publicity for the event and um i almost didn't do it so i i get there and my idols um and john godina and kevin toe cj hunter all these just absolutely incredible. Adam Nelson was there. There were so many big name shot putters and then this lower level peon saying, all right, let's do this. And right before I go out, I'm talking to John Godina and John's like, Reese, I think this is awesome. I think you should just go ahead and do it. So he gave me his sunglasses. Like just put these sunglasses on and just tune out everybody else. So I get off the, I get off the bus and everyone's going crazy. They're like, oh my God, you see this guy over here? So I'm warming up in this mask. And um, before I did it, I mean, I obviously I practiced for two weeks in preparation. I had my own, another mask that I practiced in to figure out, because you amazingly use your peripheral vision a lot when you're throwing and just getting used to that, being in more tunnel vision. And I made it happen. I, I think I got a very worn and positive, positive, um, response from the crowd. Everyone really enjoyed it. The very, I did a victory lap. They uh, announced me as Reese Hoppe as the unknown shot putter, and it was really fun. And it just kind of got me ready to be a pro. I'm like, if you can handle everybody watching you because you look ridiculous, you can handle other situations. Absolutely. And I, I just think it's cool that, you know, someone that you said, one of your idols, someone that you looked up to was all about it. Like that's, that's gotta be so reassuring um, at that point, just to know like, Oh, okay, cool. Someone that I look up to thinks what I'm doing is a really good idea for myself, but also for the sport. It sounds like any kind of publicity is good publicity. It might be, Absolutely. I don't want to say ridiculous, but it's definitely a little, little out there, but it works. And especially when you're working with something that is not as televised, anything to, to get a couple extra eyeballs on it will absolutely help. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, uh, I don't try to take myself too seriously as a thrower. I mean, I have a job that I'm throwing a metal ball and I'm yelling and I'm running and dancing around. It, it's pure entertainment kind of in the framework of athletics. There you go. I love the way yeah. you look at it. You got to just frame everything correctly and it, it makes it, you're bringing it down to the basics. You're throwing a metal ball and you're shouting about it. Like, Hey, it is what it is. If you can make a couple of dollars doing it, it doesn't sound that bad, right? Absolutely. I love it. So then you move to Europe, you live on $10,000 for an entire year. That's incredible. Let me just tell you that. Um, I mean, I live here in New Jersey where cost of living is relatively expensive. So doing that would be a, um, pretty great for my bank account, I guess, if I could do that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, congratulations. We appreciate you doing that. That's just, again, I'll use the word incredible because I think that's ridiculous. So then that pretty much set you on your way as you said you know you were able to make enough money and survive that you said okay i'll keep going so what how did then oh three starting if i'm not mistaken correct that was in oh three and then it was kind of moving forward and that's if i'm you know you started winning some pretty big events during this time how did you go from being unknown and needing to have your mom thanks again <laughs> to her i totally yeah. forgot about that part she pestered you know enough companies that you were able to get enough money and then you kind of went from, again, unknown, hey, we'll just do this because your mom's great, to, okay, now you're starting to win medals. You're on the team. You're winning medals. You're starting to do some incredible things. That was, uh, so after 2003, um, I just survived and went over to Europe, really got a, a good experience from that. And then 2004, Olympic year, rolls around. Um, I was lucky enough. I went to the World Indoor Championships, got silver. That just... That was, that was huge. So 
the amount of money I won getting silver that year was more money than I'd ever made in my entire career. And then on top of that, you know, I'm winning meets here and there. I don't win everything, but I win, I win enough. Um, so I like to think in 2004, that was kind of the, that was the year that I could start being a real professional. Like I moved out of my house that was 150 to a apartment where I paid 350, like a real apartment with air conditioning and heating. And um, I had more than one toilet in a house of uh, my, my the house I lived in was a, I think it was like four or five bedroom house with one bathroom with a bunch of guys. So it was uh, pretty horrible to, but, say the least. <laughs> to say the least. So I, I moved from there to like an actual apartment that had carpet and heating and air conditioning. At that moment, I was like, I'm, I made it. I'm, I'm a professional now. Like I, I could actually go out and eat any day I want and not have to worry about, do I have enough money to cover this? Um, so that was the beginning of my real career because I never had to worry about money as long as I was responsible for the rest of my career. So I went from 2004 until when I was done in 2016, I never really, like, I didn't have to worry about where my, where my paychecks were coming from because I was, I was getting more consistent. I was winning medals. I was making teams. Being a U.S. Olympian um, pretty much changes your life. Now you're, from being a person that was, okay, this guy's kind of known to everybody knows exactly who you are. And then you're on every, you have to be at every single track meet. That's how the meet directors kind of look at it. Um, you get more consistent at, at your craft. I, I became a professional. And unfortunately, that's kind of the way it has to go. Like, if you can't go to World Indoor Championship and, and, and medal or place really high, if you don't make Olympic teams, you don't make World Championship teams, you're not going to really, you're not going to be a very successful world, um, professional athlete. You're going to be gone in a very short period of time. So, if, if the, the key to being a professional is you have to make as many teams as you possibly can because you're not going to get, like, I got to deal with Nike. I was with New Balance for a little bit. You don't get any of these things if you're just a guy that competes on the circuit. Mm-hmm. Naturally. I mean, it's, it's especially, and it's unfortunate, but, um, you know, especially in, in lesser viewed sports, the, the sponsors aren't going to, they're not going to give you money, especially if you're, if you're not on a national stage, especially the Olympic national stage once every four years, which luckily, I mean, thankfully, again, you were three years or three, um, three games in a row, 04, 08, and 12, as we said before. So what was, where, I, I honestly, I was so young, I don't even remember, where was the 04 games? They were in uh, Athens, Greece. That was Athens. Okay, that's what I was going to say. I wasn't sure if it was Athens or Sydney, but Sydney was 2000, right? Sydney was 2000. Okay. So I was going to mix them up. So cool. Look at me. Really, really rocking and rolling on this. <laughs> um, so, so, I mean, what? So you had the opportunity to go to three different games. You had a period of, like, I'll call it dominance from like 03 to 12, if not 15, 16, where it sounds like you ended. Um, what was it like for such a, like the extended period of just, as you said, constantly winning or meddling, going to all these events, having these sponsors, you know, what were, what were, what was, what was that like in terms of, you know, obviously where you came from to then where you got to, I know you said not having to worry about money, but I think that's because you understood the value of a dollar, but what was it like just knowing the less stress knowing you're getting the best nutrition now, you're not just buying, you know, 80, 20 ground beef <laughs> in bulk, you know, you're actually getting, um, you know, what you're supposed to as an athlete. How did that help you as well? Not just stress wise, but athletic wise. Well, I, I think I understood that if I'm going to be a professional, I have to take care of my body. Um, this is, this is how I make my money. So, <laughs> excuse me. Um, so when I began that process, there was a lot of fear in a way because this could be taken away at any moment because I'm not the only guy that's graduating from high school every, not high school, but every year I've graduated from college that wants to be a professional. Everybody wants to be a professional and maybe have a skewed view of what shopping is, but I think it's the greatest event on the track or in the field at least. So everybody wants to do it. The shot put is the glory event in the U.S. We have a rich tradition in it. So for me, I, every single year, I'm just like, I have to make sure I continue just to be very good at what I do. And it's like, almost like playing the stock market. I'm looking at every single guy, every single result, every single picture, every single video. I'm looking for ways to know, okay, what's that guy's trigger and how do I beat that guy on a consistent basis? And it's not just the U.S. guys. I'm looking at every single person in the world 
how do I figure out a way to beat this guy on a day? Because when you're traveling to Europe, it's, I mean, I'm throwing for what I consider pretty big money. And if I'm getting second or third, then all of a sudden maybe I don't get to pay the mortgage or not necessarily, but you know, it's just, it comes down to, I wanted to also make sure I got something out of the sport. So if I did this sport and I have nothing like I'm starting at zero, I don't have a savings, I don't have retirement, all those kinds of things. I would have definitely viewed my career as a failure. I need, I wanted to make sure because I'm dedicating all of the really good money earning parts of my life to throwing a steel ball as a career. I want to make sure I'm leaving with something and I, I, that's, that was a big motivator. You know, I wanted to buy my first house, so I have to make sure that I, I'm kicking butt. Like, you know, my 2004 was enough for me to get married and buy my first house. Uh, what I did in 2007, I made enough money where I could buy my second house, move out of the first one, and uh, buy my wife a car. You know, things like that. Like, uh, my, in 2014, me winning the Diamond League final paid for my wife's car. You know, so you look at it not just as, okay, it's just money, but this is what the value of every competition and this is why I work as hard as I do. That's awesome. I love how you can attribute specific things to a specific years or even specific events, as you just said, like that makes it like, I, I try and do the same thing. It's not just, okay, I make X dollars this year. It's if I do this one thing, then I'll be able to do this, this, or this, or this, this, and this, which is always more important. So having that almost like a sales mentality, it sounds like you have, like, I need to get this today so that I can do this tomorrow. Um, and that's what I really love. You get in what you put out or you put in what you get. You, I think you know what I'm saying. You get in what you put out, put in, get out, whatever. You're, you're putting in an extreme amount of work and an amount of attention to your body so that way you're, you're able to buy a house, get married, get your wife a car, all these things. And I just love um, the mentality you have around that. And so, so was, it sounds like at any point in time, as you said, like you could fall either fall off, but injury must have been a huge, uh, huge mindset for you guys, especially knowing like, okay, if you get injured once and you're off for a year, year and a half, two years, I mean, that's obviously a real concern where that's all your income, you know? So how, how did you, you know, what was that pressure like in understanding like these are the most important things that I have to do? A, the best ability is availability, but B, yeah. making sure that you're, you're able to be in these events and then win them. Well, I think the most important thing is the off time. So in, in holidays, like I can't tell you, I, I, I went up to uh, Breckenridge, uh, Colorado, and got to watch all my friends go skiing. And I'm down at the bottom of the hill, just uh, trying to stay warm. <laughs> yeah, it's good. You know, hey, watch my, Yeah, You know, just like, oh, we go to the lake, and everybody gets to go ski and tubing. Um, I'm, I get to be the, dri the all-time driver. You know, stuff like that. Um, I'm, for a lot of my career, I tried to keep myself insulated from things that would put me at risk of ever getting hurt. So any twinge, anything I felt my ankles, I'm always getting checked out, maybe like a hypochondriac a little bit because everything matters. Um, like you, you learn a lot about how your body responds to stuff. So um, I would only drink caffeine only on meat days and that's year round. Like maybe I would slip during for one week during the entire year where I'd say, okay, I'm going to have a Coke today because I want a Coke. But during the during the uh, during the track season, I, it's just water, sports drinks. Never drink anything with caffeine because I want to have that stimulant effect on my body. And and the crazy thing is, so I I start training or competing in January, and then my last one's in September. So I start off with a half a cup of coffee. That's what I would drink before a competition, and that's enough to get me going. And by the end of the season, by September, I'm drinking probably two pots of coffee and a Red Bull uh, just to get me through the competition because your body adapts. That's just mm -hmm. kind of one of the things you kind of learn. Your body adapts. Um, try to you know, control the diet. You know, well, I, I can't have that fourth peanut butter and jelly sandwich today. Maybe I should only have three. You know, just stuff like that. That's, that's how you become a pro. You just you learn what you have to do to stay your optimal number one, and you just do that religiously, and that's just my mentality. If that's what I have to do, I'm going to do it. If I have to – like I got to points for years where every day before I go to bed, I stretch for 40 minutes. 
And I do that. And I did that for years because if I lose mobility, then it means I can't you know, lose the ability to stretch my leg in a particular position that's going to allow me to apply force in the middle of the ring and finish the ball with power. So you just have little things. <laughs> yes. It's, I mean, that's what it is being a professional, especially being an elite athlete like yourself. I mean, being one of the best in the world for, for a, a long stretch of time. I mean, you have to, it, the next guy, I mean, when, it, when we're coming down to inches or half of inches or I guess centimeters um, yeah. on the international case, you know, that, all that stuff matters. All that stuff is going to be taken into effect. And, you know, maybe it's something that happened, maybe not today, maybe it was something that happened two weeks ago, or maybe it was something that happened, you know, a month ago that was actually attributing to that potential win or loss. Um, so, no, I think being super calculated, very strategic and understanding of exactly what you need and what your body needs and how, how you do it. You know, I just love, I was thinking, I was like, why would you only drink coffee on meat days? I mean, I drink like two cups of coffee a day as it is. I don't know if it does anything, but it wakes me up in the morning and that's what I'm looking for. But it makes sense that you, you don't drink it any other time during the year. You only drink it on the days when you need it because as you said, your body adapts. And I just think that is so, you know, like, focused and and as i said before calculated that i would just assume well you would want to drink coffee every day so you could get up and train but no no no. you want to drink caffeine on work um on competition days so that way you have the most energy possible and then that's how that's mm -hmm. how you're able to do it so i just think that's super that, i mean yeah. that's incredible that you were able to and i'm sure your coaches and and as, maybe not you're not the first person to ever do this but i just think that's so cool that you've been able to build it out to that point where you're going to be perfect on those days what you compete that's the goal. Yeah. That's the goal, right? So, yeah. so tell me a little bit about the Olympics. I mean, you went to three of them. Um, yeah. You were eventually able, which is phenomenal, to medal in the third one. I mean, I guess if that's the last one you go to, you medal. It's a, it's a good trip to the Olympics, in my opinion. Um, so what were those experiences like? I mean, the, the opening ceremonies to all of them, just being able to hang out with the other athletes. How? Mm. What was the difference between the three of them, deer in the headlights versus the veteran at the third one? Kind of explain those, those experiences to me and what, uh, what that was like. Um, I feel like every Olympics is a transition of my life. So the first Olympics, um, I was two years out of college in 2004, and it was definitely deer in the headlights. I basically, I trained and did everything I possibly could to make the team and then had no idea what I have to do to actually get a medal when I'm there. So and, and it's, I think there's a science behind it a little bit. So I, I went um, we went to Olympia, which was pretty awesome, and we threw, and it was just, it felt like it was like a blur. I get there, we're there for about a week before we actually competed in the Olympics, and it was unbelievable. It's like in the mountains. You go down the mountain through the woods, and then there's this pristine open area to do practice. Um, another funny thing is they, we had like five coolers of Heineken beer at the uh, at our training area at the, the facility we trained at, and it was unbelievable. I'm like, I've never seen this much beer in one place. Uh, you know, it's one of those kind of things. It's so weird. Uh, but they treat you like you're an absolute god, and I'm not. I was never used to that attention. If you don't get attention when you're starting this career, you don't know how to handle it. So everybody wants to talk to you. Everybody wants to be in your presence. Um, you know, you go to go get dinner with my wife was there with me or my girlfriend at the time. Um, and like, they want to give me free meals. So like, Hey, you know, you make a co off comment, like, Hey, that's a really pretty picture. And the guy's like, I'm going to pull it off the wall, wrap it up. It's yours. Go home. You know, thank you for blessing us. You Olympian at our facility, that kind of thing. And it's just, I wasn't used to that. I'm like, well, should I not pay tax or something? They're like, no, no, please take, take. And you know, um, and then you get to 2008 so previous 2008, I was the world indoor champion. And then the next year, 2007, world outdoor champion. Um, got a silver medal at the world indoor championships in 2008. So I'm like, I'm winning this bad boy. I can't, li at least I'm going to get a medal. Um, this is in Beijing, China. And I've had a love-hate relationship with that particular country. Just it's, it's um, the food, it's the travel, everything about it. But once again, you get there. And since I'm a medalist, the I thought the attention was a 10 in uh, Athens. You rank it up to like 14 when you're the defending world champion going into the Olympic Games. Way, I, I thought I did a lot of media stuff. I, I spent three days, even before the Olympic Games, doing media stuff 
I was on the uh, Sega has a track and field game. I was on the cover of the game. So I'm doing media stuff for that. Um, I was on Jay Leno. Uh, I was just like, oh my goodness, it, can it just get any more crazy and chaotic? And what eventually happened is just it took my attention away from the Olympic Games. So uh, my first Olympics, I think I finished 28th, and then I moved from 28th to 6th. And that was, that was tough because I was sure, like, I'm going to win this. It does, I mean, the distance at one was, like, just over 70 feet. Um, like, and you get disappointed. You're like, what happened? And then you just – then you're like, okay, well, 2009 rolls around, and then I have to worry about trying to win – Try to make, try to win another world championship. So um, you just kind of meander through all this, and then by 2012, I'm a grizzled veteran. <laughs> uh, I know how to say no. I know how to manage everything. Like I know exactly what I need. So for the 2012 Olympics, you know, it, when you go to these Olympic villages, they give you single beds, and they're super, super tiny. So before 2012, I'm like, if they put me in a room that has a single bed. I'm throwing that bed out the window and I'm going to go out and buy me a queen size bed because that's, that's the size I need. I need a big bed. I'm a big boy. I need a big bed. So um, I go to the Olympic games. I go to the village. They put me in a single bed. I go up to the, um, the manager. I'm like, look, I need a queen size bed. Either you can put it in here or when I return. So I did my training camp in Birmingham. I'm bringing one with me. And they're like, no, you know, we can't do that. You know, it makes us look bad as a country. I'm like, it doesn't look, look, I know it makes us look bad as a country, but it also affects my performance as an athlete. If I can't get a good night's sleep, I can't go out there and do what I need to do. Either give me a bed, put me in the Ritz Carlton, put me in the Hilton, but I need a American sized bed. I'm a big boy. So I go off. Um, so I go bed shopping while I'm there. And, you know, of course, the, the people that are hand, making sure we're doing what we're supposed to do in Birmingham are reporting back to the, the, the lead person there. And they're like, yeah, he just went and looked at some beds. I think he's about to purchase something. Um, so like two days before I go to the Olympic Games, uh, I get a phone call from her from the lady. And she's just like, Reese, we have your queen-size bed. It's waiting for you. Just bring an extra pillow. So I show up. I have a beautiful bed, and uh, they individually, since I was a medalist, since I was an Olympic medal hopeful, they're like, okay, fine. So they gave me my own room. Uh, so you get a, in uh, London, you only get one fan for a, a big old room. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. So I bought two fans, <laughs> you know. So at that Olympics, it's like I knew exactly what I had to do for every single moment. So I couldn't have been more prepared for that. And I think that contributed to me being able to get a medal is just, I knew what I needed to do. There was going to be no surprises. I knew how to handle the media. I knew exactly what to say. I knew the talking points. I knew when I could do media stuff and when not to do media stuff. So if you, if you control everything and also I love, I've always thrown well in London. Uh, it just, it's something that's where my PR is from. I knew I was going to go well. So it was like my happy, let's say going home. My second home away from home is going to London. So I knew I was going to do well there. Um, and obviously when you're going, when you're an Olympian, they take, they take very good care of you. So that helps also. That's just awesome, man. I mean, obviously <laughs> the, the first one in Athens, I think it's just super cool that you were able to go to where the Olympic games started and you're doing a sport that is a very specific Olympic sport. Like people like I, personally for me, and I'm sure many of the people listening, you equate shot put discus, you know, these events with the Olympics. That's just kind of how in my mind, they just go together. And I think it's super cool that you're able to go to like one of the, the birthplace of, you know, where some of these sports were able to start and really get their hold in them. Obviously in 08 with China, you were, um, you were, if not the gold medal, hopeful and absolute medal, hopeful. And unfortunately came a little short of that, but it yeah. sounds like you were, taking advantage of the spotlight a little bit and really, you know, ran dry and ran a little too deep with that. And thankfully that happened because that gave you the ability to understand in 12. No, I don't want to do any of this. No, give me my bed. I need a bed. What are you talking about? I'm, how probably would you like six, what six, two, six, three, couple hundred pounds. I mean, you're yeah. a big dude. Like, come on. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where obviously you need a bed that you need a bed your size for yourself um so i think it's cool that you know obviously it's a very unfortunate what happened in a way but it sounds like that set you up for more success in 2012 oh absolutely and talking about the opening ceremonies maybe my arrogance got the hold of me a little bit there too so 
my first Olympic Games didn't walk, didn't do, I didn't do the opening ceremonies, closing ceremonies, 2008, did the same thing. And I think uh, in my just being real with myself, I realized this may be the last time I'll ever make an Olympic team. I better do an opening ceremonies. So the kind of funny with that is before I did, I was talking to my coach, just talking a strategy on how to survive it. He's like, Reese, you should bring a stool. So I bought a folding stool that I could do the, the parade march. So you go from the village and then you walk like four miles uh, to make it to the opening ceremony. So every time we would stop, I pull my stool out, I sit on a stool, which was great about it is I have like LeBron James or Camilla Anthony and um, all these uh, Kevin Love. And these guys are giants and they're like, would be willing to give me any amount of money they have in their pocket to sit down for a minute. And like seeing Kevin Love, who's 6'10", he's a tall guy, sitting in a stool that's two feet off the ground is phenomenal. It's, I wish if I had my camera, I would have taken pictures. But, you know, with the NBA guys, they get a little funny about that. So I want to make sure I respect their privacy. But it was, it was all, that was by far my best memory is seeing Kevin Love, Kevin Durant, and these guys sitting on a two-foot stool and, like, loving every moment of it because at least they're not standing. That's too funny. And yeah, I mean, maybe you don't have a picture of it, but you have a very vivid mental image, it sounds like. And you're going to remember that one for a long time. That is too funny. Yeah. And as you say, Kevin Love, he's, they're all these dudes. I mean, the basketball players, they're gigantic. I mean, just at, just height wise. And as you said, you have a two foot stool and seeing them kind of crouch down on something like that is probably uh, definitely an experience. You're glad you had the opportunity to, to, uh, to, yeah. to enjoy. Absolutely. So that's cool, man. Again, congratulations on the 12 games. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, going to three Olympics, I mean, going to any amount of Olympics, I don't care if you medal or not. We appreciate it. We think it's incredible. I think it's so cool that you had the ability to do that and you really did crush it. Um, so you were able to make a successful career out of track and field and in shot put specifically. What are you doing now? I mean, it sounds like you did, you, you were trying for the 2016 games and it and sounds like you came up a little short, unfortunately. So yep. after, was it after that when you decided, okay, I'm, I'm finished, this is over, you know, you had your amazing run and then, you know, what have you been doing ever since? Uh, pretty much. I knew in 2015 um, that I was coming to an end. So I made to the world championships in 2015 and uh, I mean, I still made the final. I mean, I'm, I was still really good. I didn't. I never wanted to be a athlete that was just holding on by the thinnest fiber in the world. I wanted to be able to go out of the sport on my own terms. So when I went to the Olympic trials, um, I knew that I had a shot in the dark, and I did everything I possibly could to make that team. And you know, unfortunately, I just it just wasn't my time. It was time for the people that are there. It's their time to take over the reins of shot putting. And I always told myself that. If I went to a Olympic trials and I'm still making the team, then maybe the team, maybe it's not, I'm not, it's not time for me to retire yet. I need to literally, I need three warriors to come out there and beat the old guy. And that just, yes. Okay. And that's exactly what happened. Um, Ryan Krauser, uh, Joe Kovacs and Darrell Hill went out there like two, three beasts and beat me down. And I'm like, the throne is yours. Enjoy your time here. So, uh, so a after the Olympic trials, I pray it's like I'm done. I'm retired. So I basically went home. I, I started an academy in 2014, 15 ish, and uh, started coaching high school um, wayward professionals that were looking for a home or someone to help them out. And it's just been an absolute blast. Um, I have some really good athletes that work at the uh, Huff of Those Academy. It's where I work at, and. Um, Try to teach them how to rotate, how to glide, throw some discus, um, bring in some guys uh, from University of Georgia, some of the kids that graduated to do the weight. And we're just trying to help kids get to college. Um, I understand that, you know, for me, getting I – I probably could have went to college playing football, but to be able to go to college throwing a shot put was a lot more fun. I had more freedom. Um, I could, I could, I could grow up as a person and it's transformative. Like the person I was in high school was not the person that I became in college. I kind of grew up a lot and had more focus in terms of what I want to do with life. So I want to give those opportunities to uh, high school, elementary. I mean, I coach kids from fifth grade to professional. So you, you run, you run a lot of different athletic abilities. So you have to be really creative in terms of how you're teaching kids. It engages my mind. Um, also, I have my 
I'm a certified massage therapist. So just, I've always had an interest in the human body and how to make it better and working through muscles is a way that you can do that. And I also help run a place called Portland Training and Wellness. So I write, I don't really write the workouts per se. I mean, I write the growers workouts because that's what I did, but um, helping the lawyers, soccer mom meet their physical goals in life, like losing weight, gaining more mass. If you're a male, you make it a little bit stronger and living a healthier lifestyle. I think that's, that's what I do now. You're doing some incredible things, man. We love it. You know, I, I really like the fact that you're, you're thinking about the, the high school kids and how to try and get them to get, into college doing something maybe a little bit more um, unique, maybe something a little different that potentially isn't going to be as harmful to their body as uh, a sport like football is. I love football just as much as the next guy, but the same thing. I mean, it's, it's very understanding what happens. Um, So if there's an opportunity for some of these kids to be able to go to a prestigious university or really any kind of university at that, and be able to throw, as we've been talking about, you're throwing a metal ball. It's nothing, you know, we're not doing, we're not changing the world per se. Yeah. You know, we're trying, we're doing our best in, in our ways, but, you know, helping them do that. And obviously this is the way you're changing the world and getting people to um, be able to do something like this. I just think that is uh, extremely noble, appreciative, obviously. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's some, some pretty cool stuff you're doing, man. Well, thank you. No, thank you. You're, you're the one that put in endless amounts of work to be able to represent our country a couple different times. I'm just a guy that's asking you a couple questions and that's the way I, I'm, I'm going to keep it that way. I hope that's fine. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. I'm with me. <laughs> love it. Love it. So um, I know we're, we're pretty much over on time. This is going to be a very long one, but I do have one last question for you. And, and this might actually be a longer topic. So we'll, we'll see, you know, get in deep as, as, as far as you'd like, but we spoke about the monetary aspect of what you're doing or, or what you were doing and how you were able to make enough money for yourself. But that's, not the case for everybody. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that and kind of Olympic athletes in general and how we kind of need to either support them better, get them more sponsorships in some way, shape or form, anything on that front that, you know, you want to speak to for the next couple minutes. Um, I really think that as Olympic athletes, we, we are debt. We are giving up a whole lot. And I really wish there was a way to, to help, help us out other than, okay, Hey, we're going to give you healthcare and we're going to give you, you know, within my sport, I think if you're really good, you get about six to 7,000 bucks um, for an entire year of training. Um, and that's what you're supposed to live off of. On top of now, they, they, they're doing better. The U.S. Olympic Committee is doing a lot better in terms of, hey, we'll give you a little bit more money for massage therapy. And um, we'll give you money to go see an orthopedic surgeon just in case, orthopedist, or uh, give you money to go see a real athletic trainer. That that is that's awesome. I think it's a step in the right direction, but it it really hurts me a little bit when you leave the sport and you really haven't gotten anything. You're starting at zero. You're you're at the same level as a college graduate. Whatever degree you have, that's where you're at. So when you try to get a job, I'm like, okay, what's your job experience? You're like, well, I was I was a three time Olympian. Okay, but how does that pertain to if you're being a school teacher, it's like, well, I have a lot of work ethic and I, I know how to get things done, but it may be for like, even for me, I was going to go back and be a PE teacher. Uh, I, I, I still had to go back and do like three different certifications to prove that i still have the intelligence to be a school teacher. And in my specific area, which was in health and physical education, that I still know my stuff in that particular subject area and to passing the test anyway, and still not doing it. But um, you got to jump through a lot of hoops when you're starting at zero. Uh, now I'm, I'm more of the case where I was really lucky. I was really good. I was top three in the world for 10 straight years. So I made really good money. I mean, I'm making six figures every year, but the people that I'm competing against other Americans that eventually become Olympians, they, the reason they retire with such a high turnover is there can really only be two or three in, in, in the entire world U S wise that make enough money to support yourself or you're going to live in poverty. You're going to be on food stamps. And you hear that where you have to live on food stamps because I don't make enough money representing my country. I think in some ways you have to uh, monetize it, give rewards. Like as a United States should say, look, if you go to the, if you go to the Olympic games and let's say you get any kind of medal, you're tax free or, Hey, we're going to give you X amount of dollars for, life 
because like if I was Polish and did what I did, I, I have an upper level um, government position that pays me six figures a year for the rest of my life because I'm an Olympian or I'm a, I'm a world championship medalist. They really value their athletes. And within the U.S., that's not necessarily the case. They don't, they value us while we're competing, but they don't value us for all the work that we did in the past. Like at least if you represent our country in the military, you're going to make, you, you, you make money from that. The U S government pays you for your service and they pay you really well. But in the, unfortunately within Olympic sports, it's, we're not viewed in that same kind of vein. Like we're just these disposable human beings that kind of come in, they do something that represent our country. Everyone's happy about it. And then once you're done, you're done. So you have, you're part of a, a brotherhood, sisterhood, of these Olympic athletes that are now scrambling to figure out what they're going to do with their lives. It's, um, it's extremely depressing. It's extremely frustrating from my point of view, um, especially because yeah, you were top three in the world, but there's a lot of guys that I'm sure you trained with for a long time that obviously weren't and uh, just did not get the support they needed. And it's, it's, it's bad for the sports. Uh, it's bad. It's a bad look for the country, um, but it's mostly bad for the athletes who don't really have the opportunity to to make the money that they deserve, especially when they're trying to represent our country and do as much as they can for us. You know, I think that there should be a way that we can we can do a lot for them. So, um, Reese, I sincerely appreciate your time today. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Reese Hoffa, three-time Olympian, still, uh, uh, bronze medalist in the 2012 Games. Reese, Thank you so much for being here, man. The conversation was phenomenal. I know it's a little long, but I think people are going to get a lot out of this and really, really enjoy, um, you know, hearing your story and everything that you've been through. Thank you very much. And I hope they enjoy the story. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Our Athletes. These people are just incredible and we have athletes at the top of their game and it's so much fun to listen to them talk. If you guys wouldn't mind, follow them across all their socials. I'll have everything in the show notes. Um, Obviously, if you just search their names, I'm sure you can find everything you're looking for. But also follow us out at ourathletes.us on Instagram. If you don't mind and you have any questions for me, michael at ourathletes.us is my email as well. And also don't forget, rate, subscribe, share, review. Please tell your friends about this. I think it's such a cool project. I'm having a blast. It's going to keep going whether anybody listens or not. I'm sure we'll get a couple people to listen though. Um, so tell your friends about it. Let them know because I think it's so cool and inspirational hearing what these athletes go on a daily ba- do on a daily basis and then really what they need to do to represent our country, which I think is incredible. So thank you guys so much. Hope you have a wonderful day.